Now is the time to take out the Living Faith Notes. As you're doing so, I want to welcome those who are listening via podcast or listening or watching online at living-faith.church or are listening to KBAC AM 1390 or FM 99.1. Now we are in the middle of chapter 2 of our study of 1 Peter called Live New. We're going to finish chapter 2 and get all the way through chapter 3 verse 7. I'm not going to read the entire text at this time. However, I'm going to read verses 21 through 25. They're in bold print if you are following the Living Faith Notes. The Holy Spirit through Peter. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Those are some very powerful verses right there. Quite often we say that John 3.16 is the gospel in a nutshell, and it is. But another gospel in the nutshell is 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He, Jesus himself, bore our sins. Think about that. Your sins were in his body. My sins were in his body as he suffered on that cross. On the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Jesus has died your death for you, the ultimate death, with your sins, and he was buried with them. He died our death that we might live. We're calling this study of 1 Peter, Live New, because it's all throughout the book. Jesus died that we might live and live for righteousness. Now, as I was going through the, the text this week, I, I came across something that, that I I've just was one of those wow moments for me, and I want to share it with you. And it has to do with verse 21. It says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. And it's the word example. The, the, the Greek word is hippogrammas. And those that have attended Living Faith, you'll know from time to time. I'm going to share this with you. It's not that I know more than you, but this is cool stuff. The, the Greek language that the Bible was originally written in. Hippogrammas. Grammas, we get grammar from it. We get letters from it. Hippo means underneath. Underneath letters. Now, here's what it means. Go back to your grade school years. For me, it was third grade, learning cursive. You had, rented, you had learned other, you know, the English and the letters, but now learning cursive, do, do you remember these? <laughs> right? And you have the example of A, B, C, D in cursive. And then what did the teacher say? Take your pencil, trace the letter. That's the hippogrammas. That's the letter underneath. And then the dotted lines. And then pretty soon you're doing it yourself, right? 
That's how you learn the cursive language. That's exactly what Peter's saying here. That in what he's about to say, Jesus is our example. We look at Jesus, we look at he, how he approached different things, and we are to pattern our lives after him. So what, is, what are we to pattern Jesus after in our text? I want to be clear on this. Is it that, that Jesus shows us how to get to heaven, that, that uh, to get to heaven, live a perfect life like he did? Now, if we were perfect, that would be the case, but we're not perfect, right? No, Jesus doesn't say, pattern your life after mine to get to heaven, because we're not good enough. We're saved by the death of Jesus on the cross, by the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. He is our Savior. He is not our pattern as far as how we're saved. We cannot save ourselves. So that's not what Peter means, is by grace we have been saved through faith. Then, then what does he mean? That Jesus is to be the hippograbos, that, that we are his, he's the example that we are to pattern our lives uh, uh, after. And the answer is how Jesus interacted with different groups of people in this life, everyday life. And, and Peter mentions four of them. So live new in everyday interactions, first of all, with my enemies, verses 21 through 25, with my government, verses 12 through 17, with my employer, verses 18 through 20, and finally, with my spouse, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. First of all, live new in everyday life when it comes to... Um, my enemies. Now, verses 21 through 25, I just read them. But the scene is the cross. We're told in Scripture that Jesus was surrounded by a band of evil men. These were people that hated Jesus for the most part, except for the women that were there and, and John, the young disciple that was there. The rest were hurling insults at him. They, they truly were his enemies, and, and here's where we have verse 22. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. He's quoting, Peter's quoting Isaiah 53. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. How did Jesus interact with his enemies? Did Jesus say as he was nailed to the cross, you wait, you wait till I get off this cross, I'm coming after you. Wait till the third day. No. He didn't say that. How did Jesus interact with his enemies? He prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He, he did not retaliate. He showed no revenge. He showed no unforgiveness. Now, now, Jesus said that, that we are to love our enemies and we are to pray for those who persecute us, that we are to, to pray for our enemies. Now, the word enemy is a very strong word, isn't it? You think you have enemies? I used to think when I, when I was a young pastor, fresh out of the seminary, that I won't have any enemies. Everyone will love me. What is there not to love about me? Well, to be honest with you, there is plenty 
not to love about me. And we all have enemies. We, for whatever reason, there, there are people that cannot stand us. And maybe it's jealousy on their part. Maybe that we did something against them we're not aware of, or maybe we know what we did against them. But my friends, the fact is, in this fallen world, we do have enemies. So how do you interact with enemies? Do you just avoid them? Not speak to them? Retaliate? You hit me, I'll hit you back harder? Our sinful nature, that's how we want to interact with our enemies. We, we, we want to fight them. But here's where we have to look at the pattern of Jesus. Jesus had enemies. How did he interact with them? Again, he did not retaliate. Jesus instead entrusted himself to God who judges justly. Jesus did not spend any extra energy trying to go after his enemies, demanding justice against his enemies. Instead, he entrusted himself to God the Father. God the Father will take care of this in time. So that's our first point. Live new every day. The old way is to take vengeance, to be, hold a grudge. The new way is different. With my enemies, I will entrust myself to God who judges justly. Stop wasting energy. Stop wasting time. Entrust them to God. Pray for them. Pray for blessing upon them. Again, Jesus is that pattern. We learn how he interacted with his enemies. Secondly, we want to see how we are to interact with our government. Verses 12 through 17. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's the idea we live in a fallen world, a pagan world. Live such good lives that even though they falsely accuse us, it's not going to stick in the end. Now verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, Peter talks about other relationships with the church. We, we pretty much covered that last week. Uh, with, with the Lord, with the family of believers. But he says, honor the emperor. Now, I need to tell you that politically among the disciples, there was a lot of diversity among Jesus' original 12 disciples. Jesus handpicked Matthew. Matthew was tax collector. He's Jewish, but he was a tax collector. The tax collectors, they weren't respected by the Israelites. They, they were seen as people that, that, that sold themselves out to Rome. This is how it worked. Rome collected taxes for the Roman Empire, including the occupied territories. Rome wanted an X amount of dollars per uh, Jewish citizen. They knew what that amount was. So they basically said, okay, we need tax collectors, and here's the deal. You become a tax collector, we want X amount, 
you can actually charge more than that and profit the rest. And not only that, you will have the Roman army to back you up. Anyone messes with you, they have to deal with the, the Roman soldiers. And so there, there were Israelites, there were Jews who took advantage of this, became filthy rich. They were hated. They were seen as the worst of sinners. Now, those who were friendly towards Rome, there was a political division. They were called the Herodians. You have Herod. He called himself King Herod. He was not Jewish. He was Idumean, but he was a puppet of Rome. And there was a political party called the Herodians. Now, I'm not saying that Matthew was a Herodian, but many of his tax-collecting friends were, again, friendly to Rome. Then you have the opposite extreme politically. There is a disciple of Jesus. We don't hear much about him. He is called Simon the Zealot. Not Simon Peter, but another Simon. Simon the Zealot. And the, the Zealots were the opposite extreme. They were pro-Israel. They were anti-Rome. The Zealots wanted to put an army together and to physically go after Rome, kick them out of Israel. So Jesus handpicked two of the 12 that were on opposite of the political extremes. And the other disciples too, they had a confusion about the role of government. Take Peter, for instance. So when Jesus was arrested, there were earthly authorities there. There were policemen from the temple, the temple guard. One of them, his name was Malchus, and, and Peter drew a sword. He meant to kill the guy. He missed. He cut off his ear. Jesus had to heal the man's ear and, say, and rebuke Peter. Put that sword down. You live by the sword, you will die by the sword. Peter was mixed up on how you deal with earthly authority. Yet, decades later, through the Holy Spirit, Peter is saying this, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent uh, by him to punish those who do wrong, commend those who do right. Peter mentions the emperor twice. Who is the emperor, by the way, at this time? Nero. Was Nero a good person? No, he was corrupt. Nero was a bloodthirsty man. It's the same Nero who in Rome, and historians that really get into it, they know Nero was responsible for the burning of Rome. But Nero wanted the sympathy of the people. He blamed it on Christians. He put thousands to death. Now, there's a Colosseum with the gladiators. That's one thing. But Nero put most of the Christians to death at the Circus Maximus, which was his racetrack. And he literally lit Christians on fire to light up the racetrack at night. This is the same Nero that, that Peter says, honor him. So how do we interact with, with earthly authorities? God, through Peter, says, honor the governing authorities. And, and he mentions the emperor, but also the governor. Our application would be this, the federal government, the supreme authority. Governor would be state government. We could narrow it down to local government. And God says the pattern to follow that Jesus set is that we are to honor the governing authorities. You have nothing to fear if you do what is right. Christians should be model citizens. Governments there by God, their role is to punish the wrongdoer and to reward the, the good citizen. That's the role 
of government. And Peter says that we are to submit to every human authority. Are there exceptions to this? Biblically, the answer is yes. There is one exception. If governing authorities demand that we do something to disobey God, then we will obey God rather than men. We will disobey the government rather than disobey God. So my friends, in their examples in scripture, the midwives in Egypt, they were told to kill babies when they were born. They refused, that's murder. We can look at Daniel, uh, an unkosher diet was being forced on them and Daniel says, I'm gonna eat what I normally eat. Nebuchadnezzar has the, the vision of a 90 foot statue. Daniel interprets the dream. Then he builds a 90 foot statue and says, worship me as God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we're not going to do that. That's breaking the first commandment. They disobeyed Nebuchadnezzar. They were thrown into the fiery furnace. Daniel likewise, in, in, in Daniel chapter 6, uh, we have Peter and the apostles. They were preaching in Jesus' name. They were arrested. They were thrown in jail. And the governing authorities said, stop preaching in Jesus' name. And did Peter and the other apostles say, okay, we better stop preaching in Jesus' name? No, they said, we must obey God rather than men. That's the only exception. So here's the point. In our interaction with government, using Jesus as a pattern, I will honorably submit to every earthly authority unless they demand I disobey my heavenly authority. I will honorably submit to every earthly authority unless they demand I disobey my heavenly authority, that being God himself. Now, the third interaction is our interaction with our employer. Let me read the verses, verses 18 through 20. Slaves, in reverent fear of, the, of God, submit yourself to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And you might be thinking, this has nothing to do with employer. Pastor Scott, this has everything to do with slavery. So how are you saying it's employer? Well, let me explain it this way. There are two common Greek words that are translated slave. One of them is doulos. Doulos. Doulos literally means pierced. And, and a doulos was a slave for life. And this is how it worked. If you were a slave for life, everybody knew it. Your owner would, would take you in front of people and you put your ear down at a post and they would pierce your ear. And as people saw you had a pierced ear, that meant you were a doulos. You were a slave for life. And that word is used here. In verse 16, though, not verse 18. In verse 18, a, a different Greek word is used, and it is oiketes. In verse 18, oiketes, where it says, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. It's oiketes. It doesn't mean slave for life. It is translated household servant, indentured servants. A little bit different than, than, than slavery we had in our country. This is how it worked. Generally speaking, if you were an oiketes, you signed a contract with a rich person. They supplied your needs, they supplied your food, they supplied your housing. 
You work for them. In essence, you were employed by them. You would be an oikotus. You would be, again, uh, serve them for a period of, of so many years. Then when the seven years come, comes to an end, you could move on if you wanted to. You weren't a slave for life. You could say, you know what, I'm moving on. Thank you, but I'm moving on. Or the rich person could say, you weren't a very good worker. I'm not renewing your contract. You have to move on. That is more like an employee-employer relationship, is it not? Most employees sign a contract with their employer. So that's why I'm applying it as regards to our interaction with our employers. And my guess is here, the workers here, you don't have bosses that are mistreating you or punishing you severely like what is mentioned in the text. However, some of you have been in really difficult work environments where your bosses have not been fair to you, where they've demanded overtime and overtime. Your job was at risk if, if, if you didn't put in 80 hours a week or whatever it might be. You've had difficult situations. And our interaction with our employer, I'm applying it that way. By the way, the Apostle Paul talked about it as well. A parallel passage is, is Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. God through Paul put it this way. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as reward, it is the Lord Jesus Christ you are serving. So what should a Christian's interaction be with their employer? The Bible says, a true child of God, put your heart into it. You should be some of the best workers in your company because you know that you are, in essence, working for the Lord who provided you your employment. So in regards to my interaction with my employer, I will work hard as if working for God, not for men, even in tough times. We're going we're gonna to move on now to, to chapter 3. It's all connected. And, and see inter everyday interaction with my spouse. Chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, submit yourself to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, Peter talks about uh, a wife and, and, and submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And I do want to talk about submission. A lot of people recoil that word. Perhaps you recoil at that word, submit. Are you kidding me, submit? That's demeaning. But I'm telling you that biblically, submission is necessary and it is very beautiful. Without, without it, none of us here would have salvation. Jesus took on a role of submission in his earthly ministry. He submitted to God the Father. He submitted to God the Holy Spirit. He didn't do anything. He didn't go anywhere. He didn't say anything without their lead. He followed their lead. It was necessary for him to submit in order to save us. Let's talk about the definition of submission. The Greek word is hypotasso. It has both a military sense and a civilian sense. It was used in the military, hypotasso. It meant to fall in line. Fall in line. You have a commander. You are to fall in line. 
you are to support him. Think about that. If we were a platoon, say in the, in the uh, Vietnam, and you're going into battle, you need a leader. You, you need a platoon leader. He needs your support. You don't want to go into battle if you're not supporting your leader. Submission is absolutely necessary. It is you're giving support. And, and for, for, for uh, anyone to say, I will not submit to you, it's like saying, I will not follow your lead. That this doesn't work. Now, now there's a civilian use of the word hipotasso. And it means to follow the person who's already going in front of you. Now, let me illustrate it this way, roundabouts. Roundabouts are becoming more and more common. Less traffic lights, more roundabouts. So, so you come up to a roundabout and there's a yield sign. It's there for a purpose, isn't it? Now, what happens if there's somebody already on the roundabout and you come up to the yield sign and say, I'm not going to yield. I'm just going to go straight forward. What's going to happen? You're going to get into a head-end collision, right? That's what happens when people do not submit. It's the same word, yield. Yield to somebody who's already going in front of you. It's necessary. And, and, and Peter is, is specific here. He, he tells wives to submit yourself to your own husbands. And there's a practical application. If he's not a believer, he's going to understand that, that you respect him. And you respect, again, what God has called him to be. Now, by the way, in Ephesians chapter 5, which is a parallel account, the Bible also says that we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. So it's not just that husbands would never submit to their wives. Yes, you do. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yield. But, but God has called the husband to be the head of the, of the household. He needs your support. Now, Peter goes on, talking about wives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyle or the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean that women should not wear any jewelry, put on any makeup? No, that's not what it, that doesn't, it's not what it means. Look at the book of Solomon, Song of Solomon, and you have the bride wearing jewelry, um, putting makeup on in the, in the ancient world. Nothing wrong with that. What Peter is saying is that don't forget about your inner beauty. I'm generalizing here. Most women spend more time getting ready to go anywhere than, than men do, putting makeup on, right, putting jewelry on. It takes longer to do that. Nothing wrong with that. But to the women here, do you spend as much time on your inner beauty as you do on your outer beauty? And if not, how about make a change? Inner beauty is more beautiful. That's one of the things I love about my wife, Heidi. She spends time on inner beauty. She spends time with the Lord. We have a routine. I do my Bible study in the morning, and she respects that. I see her studying her Bible, time with the Lord. She's, she's working on her inner beauty. That's an example of that. Now, he goes on to say, that's what the women in the past were commended for. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. 
Now again, what does this mean? Sarah called her husband Lord? Isn't that a breaking of the first commandment? Did she mean she called Abraham God? I mean, what does this mean? Notice that Lord is not capitalized. There's a big difference. When Lord is capitalized, that's God. Sarah did not call her husband God. But she did call him with a term of respect, Lord. In Texas, we would say, sir. She called her husband, sir. Now, I'm sure there were times where, where Sarah knew better. Abraham's not making the best decision, but okay, sir. For instance, Abraham decided that he needed, they needed to go to Egypt for a while because there was a drought in the land. Even though God said, this is your land, stay here, Abraham said, we need to go to Egypt. And what did Sarah do? She submitted and said, yes, sir, even though it probably wasn't the best decision. While they're there, Abraham's worried that some of the kings are going to take his life because Sarah was beautiful. So he told Sarah, his wife, um, pretend you're not my wife, but my sister. And Sarah probably smiling said, yes, sir. And again, that probably wasn't the best decision on Abraham's part, but she, she submitted and she's glorified here uh, for, for what she did. Now we're going to talk about husbands, verse 7. Husbands in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. That one verse is so jam-packed full of teaching here. And I'm going to address the elephant in the room first. Weaker partner, right? I knew that is something that, like, what does Peter mean there? It does not mean spiritually weaker. The Bible makes it clear we are one in Christ. There's neither male nor female. It, it doesn't mean emotionally weaker. I think women are stronger emotionally. They know how to, uh, they feel emotions more. Men are weak emotionally. Ask a man how he feels and, and you set him in a spin. It does not mean um, weaker in any way except uh, physical strength. Generally speaking, men are physically stronger than women. That's all it means. But the positive is this. Heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a, an inheritance awaiting us. Um, it says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Be considerate. Consider them. By the way, there, there's a, the Greek word. Uh, it, it means to think about. And there's two words for think about. There's oida, which is have a head knowledge. And th there is a, a second Greek word, gignosko, which means to have an experienced heart knowledge. That's what's used here. Figure your wife out. Consider her. Ex you've experienced life with her. Keep figuring her out. Not to point out her weaknesses, but to figure out how God has wired her so she can be the, the best person that God has enabled her to be. Figure her out. Consider her. Be considerate as you live with her. Treat her with respect. Respect means to place a high value on. Of the 7 billion people in the world, if you are married, your wife is the only person who is your wife. Treat them with respect. High honor. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. Husbands that don't respect their wives are not considerate with them, you have a spiritual problem. That's a sin that needs to be repented of. 
your prayers are being hindered. Instead, turn away from that. Now, you might be wondering, how is this a pattern of Jesus Christ? How is this a pattern of Jesus Christ? And the answer is, it's a profound mystery. But Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that husband-wife relationship is the only earth relationship that even comes close to Christ's relationship with his church. Jesus thinks about us all the time. We are the bride, the church. He's considerate. He's figuring us out. He already knows us. Jesus laid his life down for us on the cross. He's crazy in love with us. I don't mind submitting to Christ because he died for me. And there's this beautiful interaction between Jesus and his church. So everyday interaction, those who are married here, with your spouse, with my spouse, I will yield to them, support them, be considerate to them, and respect them to the end. My friends, empowered by God, live new. Live new in your interaction every day with others. Amen.